Hi, I'm Issa Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hun. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. It is Wednesday, November 16th. You wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't already know that Marvel Studios is the biggest thing in entertainment. And it's not even close. The stats are pretty astounding. Since Iron Man in 2008, and then it's purchased by Disney a year later, there have been 30 movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, grossing about $28 billion globally total. That includes the highest-grossing film of all time, Avengers Endgame, and the latest film, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which opened to $331 million worldwide last weekend on its way to another likely billion-dollar gross. More importantly, not a single MCU movie has lost money. That's an unprecedented run in Hollywood, where even the most successful studios expect an embarrassing flop here or there. Some have many, many, many. Now Marvel is essentially an always-on phenomenon, with Disney Plus series leading to a new film every couple months, which powers the theme parks, games, products, all those Captain Americas I saw walking around on Halloween. It's the imagination meets business best-case scenario. As Marvel has become the dominant cultural force coming out of Hollywood, it's also taken its share of criticism. It's changed the movie business for the worse, you hear a lot, causing everyone in Hollywood to go all in on superheroes to the detriment of everything else. And there's a whole fan segment who thinks that the films are getting repetitive and that the creative engine is being stretched too thin when all the movies and Disney Plus shows are coming out constantly of varying quality. That may be true, but from a business perspective, there's no doubt the Marvel machine is still throwing fastballs. It begs the question, how does that machine actually work? I've always been fascinated by that because Marvel does not operate like most studios operate. What are they doing that makes them so successful in a genre where others, notably DC, would love to generate those numbers and just don't? Marvel's super secretive. They hate doing media that isn't just fawning fan websites or fan service. They don't even invite press to their movie premiere after parties. I know Craig was bummed about that. But Nate Moore, a top executive and producer at Marvel, agreed to come on the show, talk about their filmmaking process the unconventional way they pick movies, which characters to explore, how they operate, and the filmmakers they plucked from obscurity and turned into stars. Nate began his career as a production assistant on Spider-Man 2. Then he worked at a couple film companies, and in 2010, he got an interview with Kevin Feige, the president of Marvel, largely considered the genius behind the MCU. Nate's been considered part of Feige's brain trust for over a decade now, and he's a credited producer on Captain America Civil War, the two Black Panther movies, among others. So today... The Secrets of Marvel Studios. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Nate Moore. Nate is executive of production and development at Marvel. 
Uh, you're also a producer on Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Congratulations and welcome. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It's good to be here. All right. So I want to get into a little bit today about how Marvel works, because literally there has been nothing like Marvel Studios in the history of the movie business. I mean, you can go all the way back to the beginning. There is nothing, no company has had you know, almost 30 movies without a failure. And I want to understand a little bit more about how that happened. So take me, take us into the development process, how you guys at this point going, you know, as many movies as you have made, how you decide, okay, this is the direction we're going and this is the character we're building this around. And these are the writers and, and filmmakers we want to work with. How are those decisions made? Yeah, um, they're made in a couple of different ways, to be honest. You know, we have a not-so-secret retreat every year or two where we go away to Palm Springs, typically, and just talk about interesting characters or stories we'd love to tell or, hey, if we could do anything we wanted, what would it be? Who would it be? What what characters haven't we used that, that we're passionate about? And out of that week, uh, there are there tends to be one or two tentpoles that sometimes move, but that we start to be able to build around. And uh, things like the multiverse came out of there, things like building phase one around the infinity gauntlet, or I guess phase, through phase three around the infinity gauntlet came out of those discussions um, because people had a passion for the material. And, you know, if you think about Marvel, we have 50 plus years of material to pull from. So, right. It's not like there's a shortage of ideas. If anything, there's there's sort of an overwhelming amount of ideas. And it has to be someone being passionate about any given idea to figure out how to get it on its feet. All right. So someone says, I think we should do something with the Eternals. Yes. Or I think we, you know, Ant-Man is just sitting there. This could be a more, you know, family-friendly venue for us. What's next? Do you I know you guys have an interesting development process in that you don't you don't you don't do a ton of development outside of stuff that you have already decided you want to make. So give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah, so once we decide on making a given character, it's up to the executive on that property to become an expert on that character. And that's anything from for instance, when I was put on Captain America 2, literally reading every appearance of Captain America in publishing. It takes about, I would say, three to four months. How do you do that? Is there some assistant at Marvel that just goes into the archive and then you get a big stack on your desk? Essentially, yes. <laughs> uh, and, and sometimes they're digital stacks, sometimes they're physical copies. I have, uh, I guess I cleaned them out of my office, large binders of, of uh, most recently, all the Namor comics because I was sort of prepping for Panther 2. Right. Um, and in reading everything, you start to build an internal document of the things that are really interesting, characters that are great, moments that are great, uh, cool facts that that you maybe don't know off the surface or off a Wikipedia entry. Um, also, things maybe from publishing that feel problematic, things that we could tweak, things that um, you know we've done before, so we'd have to change. And and out of that process, you come away with a document. That's a, that's a little bit indicative of what we think the movie could be. And the reason why we started doing that, I would, you know, cut to 10 years prior. It used to be like, hey, Matt, you want to write a Marvel movie? Here's 50 years of Doctor Strange. And to have any writer 
come back with a take we would we would like was it was a near impossibility because it's so much stuff. So you have to tell them, this is what we think will work out of the 50 years of Captain America. These are the things that we are interested in making because you might read those 50 years of, of any given property and be interested in something completely different. Well, that's not doing you any service, right? Um, so we started to do our homework first. And then once we feel like, hey, we have a good handle on what we like about any given property... In the in the meantime, hopefully we've been meeting the right writers who could breathe life into that. And and I think you know in in how we think about writers, um, and I'm I haven't been in a different studio for a very long time, but it's certainly not hey who's done the biggest fanciest thing lately. It's who has a very specific voice that we think is interesting, and who will make this any given property their priority. Because as you know, Matt, like in Hollywood, sometimes you're writing a draft over here and you're writing a draft over here and you got a show over here and, and, and writers are, their focus is split because they're successful and they're good. And so they work a lot. What we kind of ask for any writer is, Hey, we want you to move into the Marvel offices and start writing. And, and, and writing for us starts with, uh, Hey, we've given you this document. You've come in and pitched. We think you're great. Come on in. Let's break your pitch apart, bring it down to the studs and rebuild it together. So that we're all on the same page uh, and we are moving the ball forward. And the reason why we do it like that is, to your point, we don't really develop anything we don't make. So if, for instance, we want to do Shang-Chi, we date Shang-Chi and go, okay, so we've got about two years to get this thing going. Um, and so you don't have time for the blind alleys and the cul-de-sacs of some of normal development. Everything is progress towards production. Um, and if we are not aligned with the writer and then the director when they come into the process, we're going to lose too much time to make that movie. Um, and and usually we are working with a solid production date and release date in mind. Right. So when someone comes in, they are on that timeline. They have the outline from you guys. They have what what you guys want out of it. And I've always wondered about that because you have to also think about everything else that's going on. It's not just what happens in Shang-Chi. It's what... So that movie sets up two or three movies later, or what's going to happen on the Disney Plus show that's going to air, you know, six weeks after that movie comes out. Yeah. So how do you how do you incorporate those bigger picture timelines and storylines into the creative process on any given movie? Yeah, the the idea is to not be incredibly prescriptive, although mm -hmm. to your point, some things are meant to set up other things. But we also don't want to lock in very smart people to ideas that might not work when they get into the weeds. Meaning, so even though I've given you this document um, and you've come and pitched, we might in the process of talking move away from what we thought was the right version of the movie right. to something completely different. Uh, and it's and that's okay as long as we're starting from the same place, because at least then we like the same thing about the material that, that you like. And then when you think about the connectivity, a lot of it is um, conversations with other executives internally. And I think one of the benefits we have to typically not having outside producers on our movies, frankly, is we're on the same team with the with the same agenda. So there's no one really fighting over ideas or concepts because we're all in it together all of our movies are going to get made. So there's no competition. And it's really about how do we tell a cohesive story together? And if I decide I'm changing something that affects your property, I go into your office and I, and I tell you. Right. 
and 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 you can have a real conversation without it being weighted by anything other than what's the best idea with a bunch of other creative people who just want to make good movies. So let's let's use a real world example here. I saw recently that you switched the development of the War Machine TV show to a movie. Mm-hmm. How does a decision like that come about? And you know what's the process? And and what are the some of the uh, the guideposts that say, oh, this is a movie. This is not a show. Yeah, I mean, in in that case, there were some great ideas that were coming out for that show, mm-hmm. but that, to be quite honest, felt too big for that show. Um, and like and expensive or or move the move the story both. along. Yeah, okay. kind of conceptually and from a you know uh, our Disney Plus shows are awesome and we love them, but the budgets are not the same as the features. That's no right. secret. Yeah. And when you're talking about a show that wants to be about seeing all the cool armors and 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 you know Don Cheadle interacting with all these armors and and sort of the legacy of Tony Stark, that became kind of cost prohibitive to do as a show. And we realized as a feature, not only can we get into some of the the sort of the beautiful imagery that is from publishing, and there's certainly an Armor Wars run, but also there's ways then to leverage the ideas of that movie and affect other movies down the line. So it becomes, you know, sort of a, a multiplication, really, of once you figure out what is cool about something, because I think what's cool about this place is I get excited about it, and, and typically my colleagues will also get excited about it, and you'll start riffing. It's like, oh, if that's true, what can we do over here? You know, um, if you're going to do that, oh, now that means we can do this other thing. And I think that that collaboration is is pretty cool. Um, and in, and in a, again, in a space with a lot of material, the things that everybody tends to gravitate towards we tend to think we have a good shot of getting audiences excited about because we're, we're audiences too. We, we go to buy, you know, tickets to these movies. Right. All right. So we, we talked about the writing process and I want to ask a little bit about the filmmaker hiring process because you guys have had this unprecedented run with filmmakers that are not conventional choices for these films, going all the way back to John Favreau for the original yeah. Iron Man, to going, you know, someone like Taika Waititi for Thor and yeah. uh, James Gunn for Guardians of the Galaxy, people that have not been thought of as doing mainstream blockbuster movies, you know, Fleck and Bowden for Captain Marvel. Uh, you know, what is it about? I think a lot of agents would like to know <laughs> what is it about? What is it about specific filmmakers for specific material? that leads you guys to say, you know, no, no, have you seen this little New Zealand movie? This guy yeah. could be good for, for Thor 2. Yeah, it's it honestly... For Thor 3, but yeah, go ahead. I, I think the things we look for, there are two things I think, um, and in my experience, this has been true. We look for filmmakers who, who have at least done something exceptional once, right? Because making a movie is hard, and, and sometimes uh, a movie that someone is really invested in doesn't come together for a lot of reasons that are in their control or out of their control. But, but have they shown excellence? Um, and are they passionate about making the movie that we want to make? And that sounds pretty simple, but uh, like I, I'll, I'll give you the example of Joe and Anthony Russo. So we were making uh, Winter Soldier. We had a draft from Marcus McFeely. We were really excited about it. This was, again, this was 10 years ago. Uh, but the Russos were directing episodes of Community at that time. I mean, it's crazy. People think of them as the blockbuster guys, but like literally you plucked them from TV. Because I am a fan of Welcome to Collinwood, mm-hmm. and I loved Community, and Kevin 
loved Arrested Development. So even though their last movie wasn't a giant hit, it was called You, Me, and Dupree, and it and it sort of didn't connect in the way they wanted it to. Um, we had a general meeting with them, and we really liked them. And Joe said in that meeting, hey, I know you think we're comedy directors, because we've been in TV comedy certainly for a long time. We've always wanted to do a political thriller. I love political thrillers. Oh, you do, Joe? That's interesting. He's like, yeah. And we said, what would you do if, if you know, if you were doing a Captain America movie set today, what would you do? And he's he and Anthony sort of described a version of the movie we were already developing. Now, certainly the details weren't weren't the same, but but their point of view on on the character and on the Civil tone, War. This was this was Winter Soldier. Oh, this was Winter Soldier. Okay, this was Winter Soldier. Oh, wow. Um, their point of view on the character and the tone was exactly what we wanted to achieve. And so, even though they wouldn't, they didn't have anything in their filmic resume that said, "Hey, they should do Winter Soldier." We were like, "Yeah, but they've done something great." Like. I think community is great. Kevin thinks Arrested Development is fantastic. Let's just sort of see if we can help him move over. Mm-hmm. And and they also really wanted to do the movie because filmmaking is hard and we are hard on filmmakers because we're always trying to make it as, as good as we can. And the filmmakers who are dying to do the movie are the ones who tend to have the stamina to get through kind of the dark night of the soul moments where everything's going wrong or everything's over budget or the thing we wanted to do isn't working out. And they were always willing to roll with the punches because they wanted to do the movie. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's funny when these movies come out and they go through a press cycle. Every filmmaker all of a sudden is a Marvel Comics super fan. And they were playing with the comics when they were six years old. And they had all the action figures. And they knew every little thing there was yeah. to know about Marvel Comics. That's bullshit. I mean, we most of these filmmakers were not comics super fans. And they got a call from their agent that said, hey, this is an open assignment are you interested in doing a marvel movie and then they come into your world so is there some kind of a marvel boot camp or something that you do with these filmmakers to ingratiate you know to get them it just into this world and knowing all the things that they need to know not not really to be or is honest. It just oversight you guys are just there all the time we're there we're there i mean you know i I was that kid who, and I am still that guy who has long boxes in his garage that my wife wishes I would get rid of. So like, I do know a lot of this stuff and the stuff I don't know, or I didn't know, I certainly know now. Um, I think they are probably more fans than you give them credit for, but certainly not with the same depth that they've described. Like Joe, Joe did collect comics. So did Ryan Coogler, to be honest. But like Ken Branna was not a comic books fan. I I mean, come on. He wasn't buying Thor. Are you kidding? I, I I I doubt it. I'm assuming he was he was probably watching you know British theater when he was nine years old. Uh, he was but, probably writing British theater. When yeah, he was exactly. Years old. And yeah. you know some of these filmmakers, it's it's a stretch, but maybe yeah. that's what works. Well, no, and and I honestly I think it does. And it's you know you talk about the process. For me, one thing I think is interesting, and specifically for writers, I would say a lot of times we're pitched writers who love Marvel, and to me that's always a red flag. Because I go, oh, I don't want you to already 
have a pre-existing idea of what it is because right. you grew up with issue 15 and that's what you want to recreate. You don't want fan fiction. I, exactly. I want somebody who's hard on material who goes, what is this? I think there's a movie here, but maybe we should be looking at it in this way. And I think, yeah. again, the best example of that for me was Marcus and McFeely, who weren't comic guys coming up. But we're like, wait, well, Captain America, this seems a bit weird. What if we kind of looked at it in this way? And they weren't married to anything. Nothing was, you know, uh, there was nothing sacrosanct. And I think that's important to be able to go, look, the source material is great and I love it. And and comics work in the medium that they were built in. But that's not a direct one-to-one translation to the best version of the movie. And sometimes it takes someone who's out of this culture to come in and go, hey, I know you think it, I know you think it should be this. But maybe it should be this other thing. I mean, Tyke is a great example of that too, right? Hey, I know Thor traditionally is a, is a bit stiff. It's a bit Shakespearean. What if you tweaked it? What if you tweaked the tone completely? Um, and I think that's and that was his about. pitch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the tone of Ragnarok is all is all Taika, mm-hmm. um, because he wasn't married to Thor on the page. Who who who? I mean, I I would. I haven't read every Thor book. I've read a lot. I couldn't tell you a, a Thor run that is totally anything like Ragnarok. Like that movie sort of sits on its own because of the filmmaker. Well, and that when you talk to other producers and ask them, why is Marvel Marvel? They say it's not just because they have these 5,000 comic books in their vault. They say it's because they are willing to challenge their own audience. Yeah. And to do things and to anticipate what the fans are going to want before they want it or before they know what to ask for. And that is a real superpower because most producers and most of the genre filmmakers at these studios, they're just trying to appease the fans right. and give them the moments that they think the fans want. But then you guys do something like what you did in Wakanda Forever, where you change the villain. You know, Submariner is from Atlantis, and he's not this Mayan character. Explain how you decided to do that um, and whether you thought this was dangerous with the fans or whether you thought you had enough cred built up where they were going to accept it. Like, take us through that process. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it's no secret that Ryan was a fan of Namor, has been a fan of Namor for a long time. and and Ryan Coogler, the filmmaker. Ryan Coogler, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in publishing, the nation of Wakanda and the nation of Atlantis often came at loggerheads. And Namor and Black Panther don't really like each other. Um, but in in thinking about it from a, a filmic standpoint, what's interesting about publishing is Atlantis feels very kind of Ro- Greco-Roman, uh, vaguely drawn. And, and, and Namor's backstory isn't as interesting as you want it to be. And again, this is from somebody who's read all the Namor books. I was like, oh, yeah, it's, it's a little like... It's not, it doesn't have the depth that it could have. And Ryan, as a filmmaker, likes things to be really anchored in the real world. So even when he was building out Wakanda, it wasn't the techno jungle from publishing. It was, hey, here's a place that's really based on other African cultures. And I think the specificity of that world is part of what made that first movie work. So he wanted to do the same thing with with Atlantis from publishing. And we were talking about what cultures it made sense to look at. And he is a big research guy, so he was looking all over the world, really, um, but but also wanted to tell the story about, he kept asking, like, why? Like, why did they live in the water? Like, what got them there? They're not aliens. That that doesn't make sense. What would, what would force somebody to flee their land? 
and and Ryan again is interested in in exploring themes of colonization as he was in the first film, and started to look at nations that experienced that, and found some Mayan uh, pottery and and with glyphs on it where the people were blue, and he was like, oh, that's sort of interesting, and then started to do some research into the the history of the Mayan people in the past and today, and was and felt like, oh, here's here's an anchor point that could be really interesting that gives Namor a specificity and gives now the world of Talokan a specificity that both narratively makes sense with the story I, Ryan Coogler, want to tell, and also visually is is an incredibly rich playground to talk about. And you, as the arbiters of the Marvel universe as a whole, you don't fear that a little bit? No, because... As I was gonna get, uh, because we were like, "Oh, that's cool." <laughs> we're like, "What?" Well, and if we think it's cool, I think fans will think it's cool. You know, right. I remember I was an assistant at Columbia Pictures when they made Sam Raimi's Spider-Man One. And mm-hmm. if you remember back in the day before internet was a real thing, he changed Spider-Man so that the web shooters were organic; they weren't mechanical. Right. And, and if there was, if there was a Twitter at the time, they would have <laughs> exploded. Uh, certainly, even. I being an assistant and like, I remember, I think maybe Wizard Magazine was talking about how fans are upset. Fans are upset. Fans were freaked out. He's changing canon. You can't do that. It's Spider-Man. And then they watched the movie. They're like, oh, it's great. (laughs) Oh, this is fine. Okay, cool. Although when you guys did Spider-Man, it went back to mechanical. We changed it back because we thought it was interesting that that, um, Peter Parker was a genius. And that's the thing you lose a little bit when they're not mechanical is you Mm -hmm. don't get to tell that story. But all that's to say, I think fans just want you to respect their material. If you change it and you have a great reason, I think they'll go for it. If you change it because you think it's dumb, they're going to smell it. You know what I mean? Um, and that shouldn't be a reason to, to do something. But it certainly should be a reason. If you have a great idea or your writer or your director or your, or your actor has a great idea that's different than publishing, if if we, again, all internally go, oh, that would be cool – we're going to bet that the audience might go with us. And and we've that's been borne out a lot. I think audiences, again, a lot of times they go, wait a second, you're, you're changing. I, I don't like the change. And then they see the change. And if and if we've done our jobs, they go, oh, that change is great. We love that. Right. <laughs> and narratively in the movie, it makes a lot more sense. It is more interesting. It does. And it's more interesting, I think. So you've worked now for how many years with Kevin Feige? Who, uh, 12 uh, years. Marvel? About 12 years, yeah. All right. So... It, he is, I've, I've called him the most important employee at the Walt Disney Company. I think he's probably the most important producer, uh, perhaps in the history of the entertainment business. Yeah. Um, I, what is it about him that people don't know that makes Marvel so successful? I will say this. I, I don't know that I know of another person who loves, who truly loves movies as much as Kevin does and all kinds of movies. But but at the same time, with the amount of success this man has had, he gives us as producers and the writers and directors so much leeway to try things that even things he initially would go, I think that's crazy. He will let you try it to prove him wrong. And he's never, at least on any of my movies, and I think my colleagues would say the same, said, no, you have to do it because I think this is what we should do. And, and I always say, like, he knows the moments in the movies that will work. So you can pitch him a whole story and he'll be like, that's really interesting, but it's the moments for him that stick out. And I think that's a that's an interesting perspective to have because I get personally get lost in the weeds sometimes of logic and theme. And he's like, okay, but what are the moments? Like when people go home, what are they going to tell their family about? 
Can you give us an example of something that that maybe was off the rails or something that he stepped in and said, okay, no, not that this, that would really evidence. Yes. This. So I'll, I'll sure. So we did, uh, we were developing Captain America three and we mm-hmm. were feeling really good, right? Winter soldier worked. People were back in, they're interested. Uh, and we were talking about a, a, a movie and we knew we had to resolve obviously the winter soldier storyline. We wanted Cap and, and, and Bucky ultimately to reunite. Um, and the plot that we were, and, and we knew we wanted to use Zemo. What a great character. He's, you know, obviously classic Cap villain. And we were building the movie around a MacGuffin called the Mad Bomb, mm-hmm. which the Mad Bomb goes off and it causes normal people to start fighting each other. It's, a, it's honestly a little similar to what I think they did in The Kingsman. And it was cool and it was, you know, it was grounded and it was political and whatever. And he was like, that's not a big enough idea, guys. And we're like, let us let us write a draft. We'll prove it to you. Okay, prove it to me. Uh, so we're getting done. He's like, and he pulled me into his office and he said, you know, I think we should try to do Civil War. And I was like, Kevin, we don't have half the stuff that's since we don't have the new warriors. We can't. Do, here's all the reasons why we can't do it. And he's like, go home, read it. Let's talk about it. So I went home that night. I read it. It came back and I was like, you read the comic. You read the Civil War comic. I reread because I'd read it before. And I was mm-hmm. and I was like, yeah, look, I, we don't have this. The negative zone prison. We don't have a clue. Like there's so many things we didn't have. He's like, OK, OK. And so I went to the writer's room. Uh, with Mark McFeely and Joan Anthony. And Kevin peeked his head and he goes, uh, so you stop with the Mad Bomb. You guys are doing Civil War. And, and I was like, ah, oh, fuck. And Joe, Joe was like, yes, Civil War. Awesome. And then we had to figure out how to do Civil War. But he was like, I just, there wasn't a big enough idea that would get audiences excited. And and we did it. Look, it it, it was scary. And when you're throwing out a whole thing and starting new, that's always a bit weird. But he was right. He was right. We still were able to pay off the Bucky storyline. We still figured out how to use Zemo. But the central conceit of the movie was something that audiences would gravitate towards, and they did. Very cool. Last question. Can Marvel go forever? Marvel movies. When, forever when Everyone around town wants to know, when is this thing going to freaking end? When are Marvel movies going to finally end? I mean, I think it can go for a long time. I think we have to continue. We can't sit back on our laurels. We can't think we have the answers. We have to continue to push the envelope as far as genre and what we're willing to explore. But to me, Marvel movies are just movies. Our source material is just, it'd be like saying, hey, are movies about books going to go on forever? Probably. Well, the Westerns ended, musicals ended. But they came, They they. it's cyclical, right? Things yeah. come back. Yeah, um, they pop up. Um, I think we can go for a while. We have a lot of great stuff in the pipeline and stuff that Honestly, we can't find room for. Right. You know, one of the great things about Disney Plus was we got to tell stories that we were like, I don't know if we're going to be able to tell that story. And now we're like, oh, we have another outlet because we don't want to make 10 movies a year. That's that's going to be bad. Um, Moon Knight, for instance, we've been talking about Moon Knight for a long time and it just couldn't get on the slate because there's too much stuff. Um, but all of a sudden we had the secondary outlet where we could tell six hours of a cool Moon Knight story that otherwise doesn't exist. And, and I think... There are a lot of other properties like that, that that we haven't had a chance to tell. So I think it can go on for a while. Forever is a long time, but but we certainly don't feel like we're done. All right. Nate Moore, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you excited about the Grammy nominations? I never really care too much, but I do like watching the performances, and it's a good crop of people this year. You learn something about people when the Grammy nominations come out. Uh, for instance, we just learned that you're a big ABBA fan. 
I am. I love ABBA. ABBA has has resurged in culture the last three years. The TikTok era has been very kind to ABBA. I love that. I'm going to fight you on the Mamma Mia movies, though. But I will say, I, I'm not some new ABBA fan. I've liked them since the days of when I was a kid listening to them on a, on a CD player. Uh, I learned via the Grammy nominations that ABBA put out a new album this year. That's right. <laughs> they, are nominated, they are nominated for Album of the Year. Yeah, it's called Voyage. Did not know that. Yes, I have to check that out. The interesting thing about the Grammys is, you know, it's this perpetual question of how relevant they are anymore because obviously people are not looking to the Grammys to discover music these days. The ratings for award shows in general and the Grammys in particular have been declining significantly over the year. Over the years, uh, my prediction is that I think the Grammys are going to get a boost this year in the ratings. Because for the first time, you know, since before the pandemic and arguably mid 2010s, they've got huge stars that are nominated this year. If you look at the album and song and record of the year categories, you've got Beyonce, you've got Taylor Swift, you've got Kendrick Lamar, you've got, um, you know, Adele, Harry Styles, Bad Bunny, Lizzo. I mean, these are big, big names and something that I know talking to people associated with the recording Academy, they are extremely excited about having them. We don't know who's performing yet. We don't even know who's showing up. I mean, there are some artists who still are boycotting the Grammys like the weekend and Drake. They don't love the Grammys. They think they're out of touch and they don't trust those. Uh, they have these secret review committees for nominations that a lot of people didn't like. They got rid of that and still they have pretty good nominations this year. So uh, my prediction is the the ratings for the Grammys will come up from last year, which was 9.6 million viewers uh, live in same day, which was not an all-time low. The all-time low was the year before in the pandemic kind of ravaged uh, partially live and partially not Grammys. But um, I think they are going to have a, a spike. I don't think it's going to reach the Oscars. I mean, the Oscars are, are at 16.6 million from last year, which is also way down from the usual highs, but was not an all-time low. Uh, but it's certainly going to beat the Golden Globes. The Golden Globes are being relegated to a Tuesday this year. Normally, the pecking order is Oscars, Grammys, Globes for ratings. And the Globes, you know, with all the controversy surrounding them and having canceled the show last year, uh, NBC is putting them on a Tuesday and that's going to really hurt the ratings. So I think Grammys are going to have no trouble being the number two award show. So what's the prediction here? You're saying it's going to remain Oscars, then Grammys, then Golden Globes? The Globes, the Globes was close. The Globes is typically, you know, in the heyday of the Globes, you know, depending on the football lead in, sometimes on Sundays it would have a football lead in. It could spike that up. Uh, but uh, this is going to be, the Globes are going to sink and the Grammys, I think, are going to get a little spike here. Um, and they also air on Paramount Plus, although they did not release numbers for Paramount Plus this past Grammys in April. Uh, we'll see if they do that this year. Uh, all right, that is the show for today. I want to thank Nate Moore for coming on from Marvel. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck, and I want to thank you. We will see you on Friday, actually, Friday this week. Bye.